Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners. We had a great response to our first episode, and we can't wait to hopefully share more stories with you. The best way for you to help make that happen is by subscribing, writing a review, and recommending Enigma to a friend who you think would enjoy it. Each episode of Enigma takes countless hours to research and produce. We have therefore decided to accept sponsors. This episode's sponsor is Reed's Jewelers, your family-owned jeweler trusted for generations. You can visit them online at reeds.com. They have an easy-to-use mobile-friendly website. Browse diamonds, fine jewelry, timepieces, and brands like Forevermark, Omega, Pandora, Alex Anani, and much more. Stick around after the show for a jewelry story featuring Elizabeth Taylor, Ping Pong, and diamonds. Now, on to the show. South-central Kentucky, home to rolling hills, tobacco fields, and lush green forests. Underneath the bluegrass state lies a world that is entirely alien to the one above it. The area's limestone is home to a labyrinth cave system that runs more than 400 miles. It is the longest cave system in the world, and parts of it still lie unexplored to this day, shrouded in mystery. This is Mammoth Cave. And for millennia, it's been known for its wondrous caverns, subterranean rivers, and a history that at times is even darker than the cave itself. Mammoth Cave played a large role in the lives of the indigenous people of Kentucky for about 2,000 years. These people not only explored the cave, but also mined it for gypsum, selenite, and other minerals. Then, without explanation, they left the cave and vanished from history. They didn't keep written records, so very little is known about who these people were. We only have the artifacts they left behind. No one knows why they left or where they went. However, some of the bodies of those who got lost in the underground mines have been found, preserved, mummified by the cool, dry cave air. Mammoth Cave was accidentally discovered by Western civilization in 1797 by John Hawkins when he sought refuge from a bear attack. A year after the discovery, Valentine Simmons surveyed the entrance to the cave and began exploring. Over the next 40 years, ownership of the cave changed hands several times. Mammoth Cave was once again mined, this time for its saltpeter reserves, but it also began to attract tourists. This led to the cave being mapped out more and more by the slaves, of course, who worked in the cave. The most intrepid explorer in the cave's history was a slave named Stephen Bishop. Stephen was brought to the underground wonder as a teen in 1838. Around this time, the cave ceased to operate as a mine when the saltpeter market collapsed. Now the cave's only source of revenue for its owners was through charging visitors for tours. This created the need to thoroughly map out the cave and find any landmarks that would draw additional tourists. Over the next 20 years, Stephen explored the cave by lantern light and named many of the landmarks that tourists marvel at today, such as the Bottomless Pit, Fat Man's Misery, and Cleveland Avenue. He regularly referred to the subject of his life's work as 
grand, gloomy, and peculiar. People all over the world heard about the subterranean phenomenon and wanted to see it for themselves. In 1842, the cave had a particularly unique attraction. If you were on one of Stephen's tours that year, you might have heard coughing coming from the dark, followed by murmuring conversations echoing through the stone halls as you approached the main cave near the star chamber. If you could overcome your fear and continued walking deeper, you would see a haunting image. Ghostly figures in gowns shuffling through the darkness among the stone huts. Their spindly bodies were illuminated by the warm flickering of lanterns, casting witchy shadows on the walls. To the horror of the onlookers, these wraith-like people would move weakly through the caves, stalactites and stalagmites, just trying their best to make it through the day. And these were not ghosts or tricks of light, no. These figures were very much alive, but clearly suffering. They were the subjects of a doctor's experiment. A doctor desperately trying to cure one of the world's most deadly diseases. Consumption, known today as tuberculosis. The experiment, deep in the earth, was the nation's first tuberculosis hospital. The hopeful sufferers and the doctor who designed the facility believed that the cure lied in the naturally cool and dry underground world, but the results of this desperate act would haunt both the doctor and his patients, and some say the cave itself, forever. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Disease has always been one of humanity's biggest adversaries and terrors. Scourges like the Black Death, Yellow Fever, Smallpox, and most recently, AIDS have wiped out millions of people, terrorized populations, and brought out some of the worst in us. One of humanity's plagues that has remained with us since earliest recorded human history is tuberculosis, historically known as consumption. Mummies uncovered in ancient Egypt displayed symptoms of the disease, and until 1943, there was nothing anyone could do for someone suffering from the disease, except to try to make them comfortable. Before 1943, you had less than a one in three chance of survival. I'm Dr. Wayne Lucas, and I'm a board-certified family physician. I was a regional medical officer for the government and um, worked and lived overseas for about 16 years and ran into tuberculosis in a lot of the countries that I lived in. And just, it's a general wasting disease. Chronic cough, of especially a cough containing bloody sputum, fever, night sweats, weight loss. They used to call it consumption. At one time, in the United States, it was the leading cause of death. Throughout the centuries, humanity sought any cure possible. 
What made tuberculosis most heartbreaking is that anyone who tried to help those suffering would have about a one in four chance of contracting the disease themselves. With limited understanding of health, disease, and the human body prior to the mid-1900s, and frustration with Western medicine's shortcomings, many groups of people turned to religion and folklore for cures. Take the vampire. The myth of the vampire was one of the most popular explanations for consumption. Vampires originally were not the blood-sucking fanged monsters depicted in the silent movies, nor were they the glittery, beautiful creatures playing baseball in thunderstorms in Twilight. No. The original vampire myth was quite different. A town may be in the midst of a vampire if they noticed an entire family of a recently deceased person wasting away from consumption. People believe the dead person was actually draining the life force of their relatives. There are many accounts from both the Old World and the Americas of villagers digging up the bodies of the newly dead, decapitating them, and then burning the remains in an effort to save themselves from the vampire. While the dead feeding on the life source of the living may strike us as unbelievable today, it is important to remember that the symptoms of the disease really did make it look like this was a possibility. Tuberculosis affected society in many other ways. The disease was so common that the look itself, the thin, pale, gaunt figure, became kind of fashionable during the 1800s. This may play into why society developed an attraction to vampires. Tuberculosis also affected the movement of people in America, as those suffering with the disease often headed west in search of that dry air that was supposed to help them fight the disease. As the Industrial Revolution progressed in the mid-1800s, so did the medical profession. Research began in earnest as to the cause and spread of the disease. Early doctors believed cool, dry air was the best way to alleviate the symptoms of the disease. One of those doctors was Dr. John Croggan. Dr. Croggan was born in Jefferson County, Kentucky in 1790. His mother was Lucy Clark, sister of William Clark, who became famous for exploring the wilderness with fellow adventurer Meriwether Lewis. He attended the College of William and Mary in 1807 and then studied medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in 1810. After completing his schooling, he returned to Kentucky where he helped establish the Louisville Marine Hospital in 1823. He served as its director until 1832. There, he developed a specialty in pulmonary consumption. This brought the doctor face to face with those suffering from tuberculosis. Frustrated with his inability to save those that he saw had the disease, he became obsessed with finding a way to finally cure consumption. He believed if he could just find a place that had cool, dry air year round, then maybe his patients would be able to recover. That's when Dr. Croggan came across some very interesting literature documenting Kentucky's Mammoth Cave. The journals relayed stories of timbers from mine workers over 30 years old that had not even begun to rot. 
They noted how dead bats and the bodies of the ancient Native Americans were found without any sign of decay, even though they were often hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Dr. Krogan also read how the cave remained a consistent, cool 60 degrees year-round. Feeling he was on the verge of a medical breakthrough, Dr. Krogan decided to see the cave himself. Upon visiting and breathing that dry air, he knew what he had to do. He purchased the cave system and all the slaves, including Stephen Bishop, for $10,000 in 1839. Dr. Krogan's vision was to create a tuberculosis hospital that utilized one advantage no physician could offer, constant, cool, dry cave air. He and many others at the time also believed the vapors in the cave to be restorative. In 1842, Dr. Krogan had 11 patients in his care, all suffering from tuberculosis and in rapid decline. He had no time to spare. He sent his slaves a mile and a half deep into the cave, far from where any outdoor air or light could reach them, to construct a small village. The village had 10 buildings in all, including a community dining room and cottages for the future residents. Two buildings were built of stone and can still be seen today. The rest were wooden cottages, 18 feet by 12 feet with simple canvas roofs. Each one had a thermometer to check the temperature and a stove patients could use to heat the building. Many fellow physicians thought Dr. Crocken's idea was mad. Even though they shared the belief that cool, dry air would help fight tuberculosis, they also believed sunlight was crucial to recovery and of course, Dr. Krogan's patients would have none deep in Mammoth Cave. Nevertheless, Dr. Krogan persisted, and by the fall of 1842, the nation's first tuberculosis hospital welcomed 11 people suffering from consumption, four of their companions, and a child, for a total of 15 people. Dr. Krogan's experiment finally began in earnest. The first order of business for the patients was making their new home actually feel like a home. They set about creating paths and planting bushes to make the cave more like a neighborhood. They kept time and they synced their schedules to the outside world and the slaves of Mammoth Cave would bring them breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day at the same time. On Sundays, the residents would gather together for an Episcopal church service. The rest of their time was spent conversing with one another reading books by the light of their fat lamps, or exploring their new home with their personal taper candles. The patients were willing to suffer through the hardships of subterranean life for any shot of ridding themselves of consumption. At the start of Dr. Krogan's experiment, many patients began to feel their energy and appetite slowly returning. It was as if the cave was magic, improving their health. The following is a letter from one of the patients, Oliver Anderson, to a friend shortly after his arrival in Mammoth Cave. Anderson describes how trying life was in the cave, but his letter is full of optimism, not only for himself, but for countless others around the world suffering from this terrible disease. My name is Oliver Anderson, and I was one of the patients in Mammoth Cave. I felt stronger and took exercise freely, preserved a good appetite, and seemed in the ascendant decidedly in the line of health. Sometimes, despite all my exertions to preserve cheerful feelings, 
felt sad and desired above all things to return home again. We are pioneers under all the disadvantages of such, and after generations will reap the benefit of our experiment. Dr. Krogan, excited by the early results, believed his cave experiment would soon be an unequivocal success, one which would echo throughout the entire world. He began planning for a stagecoach route to bring future patients to the hospital. He also drew up plans for the construction of a hotel in the cave's massive room, now called Wright's Rotunda, to serve as a larger hospital. He believed this cave was the only resource in the world that could cure tuberculosis and was sure to bring in afflicted visitors from far and wide, willing to risk everything, including their fortunes, to just regain their health. Finally, Dr. Krogan seemed to be on the verge of achieving a goal he'd sought for decades, one that many of his peers thought was unachievable. The experiment wasn't without its setbacks, though. Some patients began to complain of their symptoms, especially their coughs, getting worse due to the smoke created from cooking and heating their homes with the stoves. A mile and a half deep in the earth, Kaver was unable to circulate. Patients longed to see daylight and their friends and families on the surface. Anderson asked to leave the cave at one point, but Dr. Crockett managed to persuade him to remain. It was the only way to save them. Why would he want to leave? Eventually, the scene in the cave began to turn grim. The early optimism of the experiment began to fade. Bushes the visitors planted began to wilt and decay. Alfred, one of the slaves and cave guides, developed a fear of calling the patients to dinner. After beckoning them, he'd be forced to wait for the emaciated figures to slowly wander from their small wooden cottages and their hospital gowns and join together for dinner. He described them as a company of skeletons more than anything else. Finally, one of the patients succumbed to the disease. The body of the cave hospital's first victim was placed on a large, short slab of rock today known as Corpse Rock before being carried to the surface by Dr. Krogan's slaves. Seeing the first of their number to die in the cave must have broken what was left of the survivor's morale. Pleas to give up the experiment grew more intense as the placebo effects of the patient's first hopeful experiences in the cave wore off. But Dr. Krogan persisted. Dr. Krogan believed that one death was terrible, yes, but did not yet prove his experiment a failure. Only one patient actually left the cave during the experiment, Oliver Anderson. It was during this time that visitors to Mammoth Cave, following their guide, Stephen Bishop, would have been greeted by that terrible sight near the Star Chamber. The failing tuberculosis sanitarium now housed figures that were just skin and bones. The patients were coughing day and night, unable to find relief. It would be discovered later that the commonly held belief that cool, dry hair helped those suffering from tuberculosis was a myth. 
In fact, the smoke from the fires and candles further irritated the patient's already weakened lungs. They were frail and moved unsteadily throughout the cave in an attempt to maintain their day-to-day routine. Their skin grew pale from the lack of sunlight and the pupils of their eyes swelled in diameter. Some visitors to the cave claimed the eyes of the consumption victims were completely black. They appeared to be the walking dead. By the beginning of 1843, four more bodies had been laid to rest on Corpse Rock. The surviving victims were so frail that many of them struggled to move under their own strength. Dr. Krogan finally decided to call off his experiment and he brought the survivors to the surface. He discarded his plans for the stagecoach, road, and hotel, but he kept the cave. He believed he needed to provide ventilation to the subterranean hospital and began drawing up plans to drill a hole from the surface down to the village. But this was never done. The experiment was a failure. Mammoth Cave lasted as a tuberculosis hospital for less than a year. Dr. Crogan's attempts to cure tuberculosis weren't the first or the last in humanity's long fight against the disease. Until streptomycin was discovered in 1943, we had no way to combat one of mankind's greatest killers. Today, we know much more about the causes of tuberculosis and how to treat it, and while the disease has been eradicated in most of the developed world, many impoverished countries still struggle to overcome it. The primary risk factors for tuberculosis are a community's overall sanitation, education, and income. These three factors are tied inextricably together. The arrival of AIDS has also created a world in which tuberculosis can wreak havoc in a population whose immune system has already been compromised by the virus. Today, tuberculosis is treated with an intense course of antibiotics, often lasting six months or more. Even with our advances in the field of medicine, the fight against tuberculosis is a difficult and a costly one. In 2015, it was estimated that more than 1.7 million people died from the disease. This reality points at something perhaps darker than the disease itself. The developed world turning its back on those less fortunate. You could argue that Dr. Krogan was crazy to attempt his experiment in Mammoth Cave, but not evil. The reality is he put his own fortune and health knowingly on the line in a last-ditch effort to cure those suffering from the disease. Today, we have the benefits of understanding tuberculosis and proven courses to treat it. Yet still, almost 2 million people a year perish from the disease. Probably a third of the population of the world has been infected with tuberculosis. Most of those have latent tuberculosis, but probably 
10 million people have active tuberculosis. Nowadays, we start off with four drugs for tuberculosis that is sensitive to drugs, and then continue with two drugs for usually a minimum of, of six months. But it does depend somewhat on the sensitivity of the organism, because nowadays more of the strains of tuberculosis are resistant to the drug. And it also depends on other factors, like people who have a suppressed immune system, like those who have HIV, it has to be treated more aggressively. Drug-resistant tuberculosis is definitely a problem everywhere. One that you run into more in undeveloped parts of the world, but uh, just because they're located in one part of the world, yeah, it's a, it's a small world nowadays. Drug resistance in all bacteria are a, a problem that we're having to deal with in, in the United States now because as time goes on and antibiotics are misused not only for tuberculosis but for other things, we find that there are more and more strains of drug resistant organisms that are developing. And unless we keep getting newer and better drugs, um, you know, we'll lose the race. resistant tuberculosis continues to evolve, becoming more powerful and more untreatable, raising concerns that in the not-too-distant future, it may once again threaten the developed world that now ignores it. This would put us in the interesting position of having a plague we cannot cure, and may once again lead to wild ideas on treating it and new Dr. Croggins. cave is a place of wonder and mystery. There is no place like it on Earth. If you go today, you can tour the caverns Stephen Bishop explored and view the two stone cottages that remain from the cave's time as a tuberculosis hospital. Not far from there, you can see Corpse Rock. If you ask the National Park Service guides there, they'll be more than happy to point you in the right direction. The patients who served their time in the cave and emerged into the blinding daylight in the spring of 1843, all eventually succumbed to the disease. Yet, those weren't the only people in this story to fall victim to tuberculosis. At age 37, the great cave explorer Stephen Bishop died in 1856, one year after being granted his freedom by Dr. Croghan. While the exact cause of his death can't be verified, many sources believe the cause to be tuberculosis. Perhaps his exposure to the disease was from his time leading tours in the end of 1842. This has led many to wonder if tourists who visited that year might have contracted the disease upon seeing the ghostly village up close. Dr. Croggan continued dedicating his life to eradicating the scourge of tuberculosis. In 1849, he came down with a cough. Initially, he thought it a common cold or the flu. But once he began coughing up blood in increasingly violent fits, the doctor knew his fate. He died of tuberculosis before the year was over. Places hold energy. 
the past leaves its legacy in all kinds of ways. To this day, visitors claim to have witnessed strange occurrences near the Star Chamber. People have reported smelling smoke as if from a stove. They've also heard coughing echoing faintly throughout the cavern's halls and murmurs coming from people unseen. Occasionally, there's a pale, almost skeletal-looking individual in a long white robe moving through the two remaining stone buildings. Sometimes he's seen lying motionless on a low-lying flat rock not too far away. Perhaps today's visitors have an active imagination. Or do they? Maybe it's a warning. A warning of a time over 150 years ago when a man thought he had cured tuberculosis before it returned to wreak havoc and destroy his life and the lives of all his patients. An echo from that past bleeding out like a beacon. It may be a warning we should heed. Thank you so much for listening to Enigma. If you'd like more information on Mammoth Cave and its time as a tuberculosis hospital, check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We have old drawings of the cave, photos of the remaining tuberculosis hospital homes, and information on tuberculosis. You can also find links to our sources there. If you'd like to hear more Enigma, then we need your help. Enigma is now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, so please subscribe as our subscriber count attracts more listeners. We'd also love it if you'd personally recommend Enigma to a friend or family member that you think would enjoy it. Another way to help is to rate us and write a review on iTunes. If you do, we'll give you a call out in future episodes thanking you for your support. This week, we had reviews from Orbiter11290, McJoseph1898, and Tim0909. Thanks so much to all you guys for taking the time to review us on iTunes. It means a lot. iTunes reviews help us attract additional listeners. I'm Rebecca Knight. And this is Enigma. Enigma is written and produced by Alex Holscher. Research by Patrick Basquell. Original art by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. And now, a story we are excited to share with you from our first sponsor, Reed's Jewelers. The Swiss Alps, 1970. Elizabeth Taylor was playing a game of ping pong against Richard Burton. To say it was intense would be an understatement. There was a lot at stake. You see, Richard Burton bet Elizabeth Taylor she couldn't win 10 points against him. What would she get if she did? A diamond. Elizabeth Taylor won 30 points that day. True to his word, Richard Burton went out to find the diamond rings today known as the ping pong rings. Behind every great piece of jewelry is a great story. Find the perfect gift for yourself or for someone special in your life at Reed's Jewelers, your family-owned jeweler trusted for generations. You can visit them online at reeds.com.